All right. We are here with Mr. Christopher Welch. Thank you for joining us tonight. We appreciate your uh, your time. Um, having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, it's a loaded up. question. I know. Let's, let's start with the early days. Yeah. yeah. The young Chris Welch. I grew up in upstate New York, which is where I'm recording this from. Uh, went to high school here. Went to uh, college in uh, at Williams College in Massachusetts. And then uh, following college, I had the opportunity to uh, go to work for Cummins Engine Company out of Columbus. So uh, moved out to the Midwest, uh, <clears throat> moved around uh, quite a bit with Cummins and different jobs. Eventually moved back to uh, Columbus, had the uh, idea for Cummins to start a truck driver training school. Uh, convinced them it was a good idea. It was at a time when Cummins was actively pursuing other businesses related to the engine business. And uh, so they thought that made a lot of sense. I got the school started for them. Uh, we, they stayed with it for probably three or four years and then decided to sell all of those ancillary businesses that were not directly in the engine business. So they came to me at that time and asked me if I wanted to buy the company. I got together with a uh, friend of mine in Indianapolis, Sam Sutphin, who uh, is an investor, and we bought the company from Cummins. And that was probably 35 years ago, and we have run it ever since. Uh, I had the opportunity to retire or semi-retire about uh, seven years ago and moved back home. We found a beautiful piece of property in upstate New York, not far from uh, where my family lived and all my siblings, uh, 100 acres of land on a beautiful river flowing right out of the Adirondacks. And it was my wife uh, is a physician. She was in a position where she could move. I've got uh, good people at the company. And so we just decided that that was the uh, time to make the move. Our kids were still uh, in high school. We had one daughter that was uh, at IU at the time. And so from a timing standpoint, worked out pretty well. And uh, we moved to upstate New York and it ended up being a, a really good move for uh, for me and for the family. And Knowing that, I don't know why we're not there doing yeah, a seriously. live yeah. interview there then. I think we need a satellite satellite yeah. studio. It is a, it's an absolutely beautiful place. Uh, there are lots of nights that I'll sit out on uh, by the fire pit and pinch myself and think, this must be the most beautiful place in the world. Yeah, that sounds in awesome. Fact, we've got uh, 100 acres of land and horses and cows and seven. I've got seven dogs and it's it's pretty nice. Sounds great. So when you moved originally from upstate New York and came to Cummins uh, in Columbus, what what was that change of scenery like for you um, coming to the Midwest? Was it more uh, culture shock or no? Culture shock. Yeah. 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 I did not realize how flat it was out there. <laughs> I remember driving from the airport in Indianapolis down to uh, Columbus, and you just drive through cornfields and soybean fields, and uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, culture shock in terms of not just the, the landscape, but you know, the people are different. Right? It's, uh, you know, we're up here in upstate New York, and it's just a little bit different kind of vibe that you get from the area. But, mm-hmm. You know, this is where I grew up. My family was back here. Uh, my mom was still alive at the time. The timing worked out well in the sense that she was uh, in her mid-80s then. She was still self-sufficient, but getting to the point where she needed help uh, so I could go and take care of her every day and uh, get her breakfast and then go back at night and get her dinner. And so uh, she eventually had a stroke and passed away a couple of years ago. But you know, it worked out really well uh, in terms of me being able to help care for her my wife was back here and she's a physician and so she was able to to help us out too and particularly on some of the medical issues so it's been a it's been a great move and uh my son chris uh is a huge bike rider and if you like to ride a bike there might be a better place to ride a bicycle but i sure haven't found it It is just gorgeous here. You can ride. I say, I'll go out and ride for 50 miles, and you get incredibly challenging riding, uh, beautiful views, and I might see a dozen cars in 50 miles. That's nice. nice. It's really nice. So, yeah, Yeah, it's really worked out well. And our our youngest son, John, who is now 19, uh, loves horses and my wife loves horses, so we've got uh, four horses, of which two are draft horses, and they Amish big Amish draft horses. Mm-hmm. They pull one of those big wagons, and it's, so yeah. Sounds great. Well, going to the Cummins story, when they came back to you to see if you wanted to buy the business, the entrepreneurial side of us found that finds that very intriguing. Like I, I think that's very cool because I got to imagine that. It's probably, I could be totally wrong here, but that would, to me, that seems fairly rare that a, a, a corporation the size of Cummins would come to an employees to see if they would want to buy that versus just selling it outright to well, a third party or someone it, else. It sounds like you had built it for them though, right? So it was kind of, it was kind of your, your pet project almost. And then I built it from the ground up. The other yeah. thing is that knowing Cummins, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with Cummins, one of the things that Cummins was most concerned about in the transaction was that whoever bought it would not do anything to tarnish their reputation. And when they sold it to us, they sold it together with the Cummins name, uh, which we would keep for one year. And you know, their main concern was, you know, it was small potatoes for them in terms of dollars, but they did not want their reputation tarnished in the least. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, after a year, we changed the name. We uh, to s- kept the Cummins C, put a one after it, and called it C One. And uh, it's really it's turned out to be a great business. Uh, we now have uh, ten or eleven campuses uh, around the country, and uh, it's I think it's an incredibly rewarding business, an opportunity to help people. Uh, get on a new track in life and, and, uh, you know, 
take somebody who might have worked at the 7-Eleven their whole life and and put them in a new career where they can make good money and buy a home and put their kids in college and, and do those kinds of things. Plus, we employ a lot of people. So yeah, it's been a great business. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's I, awesome. I would like to think that as a buyer, it's kind of have reassuring to have a, a, a company like that, that that wants to make sure um, this is successful once that transition has been made. Yeah. So that's kind of a, a good feeling as well. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to convince my daughter went to IU and I tried to convince her when she graduated to go to work for Cummins because I think it's a great company for women to work for as well. Uh, but she decided uh, she didn't want to work in an office. She wanted to be outside and she moved out to uh, with her IU degree, moved to Snowbird uh, ah. in Utah. And she's on ski patrol out there. Absolutely loves it. And that's not a bad choice either. Oh, living the dream. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And the pictures she sends every day are just unbelievable. She's got to be a good skier too. Snowbird's tough. Yeah. I've been out there a few times. Uh, it's, she's a great skier. Yeah. 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 I, I taught her to ski and uh, uh, those days of me being able to take her to school on skiing are over. She's uh, <laughs> She's long past me. So. Well, she's clearly highly intelligent as well. With she went to yeah. IU, she selected a quality yeah. education. Okay, okay. Yeah. My wife went to Purdue. So. Hey, see, so, the, so there's somebody that knows what's up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's a doctor. <laughs> yeah, so. boiler up. I knew you're gonna do that. Always, okay. any chance I get, we're like a house divided here. I feel like we should have that pop up from time to time whenever we whenever we feud. Yeah, that'd be cute. Yeah, we can keep track too. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, so okay, so when when you moved back to upstate New York from Indy or I guess Columbus, um, uh, we were living in uh, Noblesville. No- Noblesville. Okay. okay. So you were at that time you were you were riding for Team Heroes when you were in Noblesville. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. And what? How did you come across the team? Uh, I was originally on the uh, Indiana Masters team. Are you familiar with them? A little bit, yes. Yeah. I was uh, probably 10 guys, all Masters, all 40-plus racers. Really competitive team. And then the team just uh, folded, and uh, I approached Don Birch about uh, riding for the Heroes team, and uh, he welcomed me in, and it was... Uh, it was good. We uh, you know, we traveled to some races. We would go up to Iceman with the, the group. My son had started racing at that point, and uh, yeah, they were very welcoming to him as well as me. And so, yeah, it was, it was just a really good bunch of guys. So I rode for them until I moved back to uh, upstate New York. Okay. What... Uh... You kind of briefly touched on this earlier, but when when you moved back, were you excited to be back in, in New York? I mean, was that, that that kind of always part of your plan to, was to move back? Yeah, it was. Uh, in fact, my wife, if you ever talk with her, she would say that I made her life miserable because I, you know, I grew up in upstate New York. My family was here. I, it's a it's a beautiful area. If you love to ride a bike, I mean, it's incredibly. Beautiful, challenging riding. Uh, however, 
when the time came to move, what happened was my sister called me and said that a house that we had been, we'd attended uh, some fundraisers at this house, uh, and it's a beautiful piece of property. Uh, it was owned by a husband and wife from New York. They used it as their summer home. They'd come up for three months out of the year and live here. And she died quite suddenly from brain cancer. And he just decided that he, uh, there were just too many memories. He didn't want to stay in the home. And so he decided to put it on the market. My sister, who's a real estate agent, called me up here, called me and said, hey, the, the Millard house is going to go on the market. Would you be interested? And I said, yeah, you know, we'll take a look at it. And a few days later, Peter, who owned the house, called me and said, I understand you are interested in my home. If you are, uh, I'll open up the house this weekend for you. It was Memorial Day weekend. You can come look at it. And if you make me an offer by Sunday and I accept your offer, uh, then you can buy the house. And if I, we don't come to terms, then... I'm going to put the house on the market on Tuesday and we'll just see what it goes for. And uh, and at that point, I got cold feet. I, you know, as much as I wanted to move back to upstate New York, it just the thought of coming up here, looking at a house for a day. Uh, my wife and I were still working in, in Indianapolis. The kids were in school there. We had a house there and just executing this this transaction in the space of 24 hours. And then it had to be a cash deal because you couldn't go to a bank and get funding that quickly. It just, I, I told my wife, I can't do this. I'm, as much as I want to move, there is no way. And, uh, and I put all my thoughts down on paper and I left them there for her when she went to work. And she called me that day and she said, you are a freaking pussy. <laughs> <laughs> For years, you have made my life miserable wanting to move back to upstate New York. We have the opportunity. We're going to do this. And I tried to come up with every excuse in the book and, and she wouldn't let me. And we came back, saw the house, fell in love with it and uh, ended up doing the deal. And, and I, I, it's probably the best decision. I think both of us would agree it's the best decision we ever made. I mean, uh, well, kudos well, to your wife for calling you out then. Yeah. Oh, no. She, uh, no doubt who wears the pants in our family. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's okay. She Looks like it's working up, out well. She grew up on a farm in northern Indiana, and uh, she speaks her mind. So, yeah, she's she's pretty tough. Well, good. So yeah. with, with April being esophageal cancer awareness month, Chris, what's, what's your cancer story? I, uh, about a year ago this time, I began to have problems swallowing. Uh, my wife, Melanie thought it may be related to all the Advil that I take for the various aches and pains that I've got. And so we started with that assumption and, uh, I, Stopped taking the Advil. It got worse. Uh, I began to have trouble eating and uh, losing weight. At that point, I called our family doctor, <clears throat> told him the symptoms that I was experiencing, 
And there was really no reason to expect or suspect that I might have esophageal cancer. There was no, I had no risk factors. There was no family history. So we started with the uh, simplest test first. I did a blood test that came back negative, nothing suspicious on that. Then I went for the an ultrasound of my major organs, nothing there. Uh, at that point, they decided to do a what's called a swallow test to see if there was some type of obstruction in my esophagus. And when I did that, they discovered that I had a, a fairly sizable obstruction that was making it difficult for me to swallow. Uh, at that point, they scheduled an upper endoscopy to go in and look at my esophagus and see what was going on. I think the assumption at that point, both by my wife and by the uh, gastroenterologist, was that I had some type of obstruction in my esophagus, that they would go in and expand it, uh, maybe have to put in a stent or something, but that I would wake up from surgery and I would be fine. I, you know, the problem would be over. And that's the assumption I went into it with. <clears throat> and uh, I remember waking up from surgery or for the en upper endoscopy and the uh, gastroenterologist and my wife were both sitting there with very grim looks on their face. And they said, uh, you've got a fairly sizable tumor right at the intersection of your esophagus and your stomach. And we think it may be cancerous. Like, holy crap. I think when anybody hears cancer, right, it's just it, it's really, really scary. They walked out of the room to go consult with each other. <clears throat> they had left my phone there. The first thing I did was looked up what is the survival rate on uh, esophageal cancer? It was only 20%. I'm like, holy crap, how can that be? Yeah, how can how can you have a 20% survival rate on something that just doesn't seem that serious? But in fact, it was. I mean, so at that point, then, uh, we we had to really think hard about treatment and what we were going to do for treatment. We had a couple options. Uh, the first was I could get treated. I mean, it was fairly clear that uh, the, the path for treatment was going to be chemotherapy, radiation, and then followed by surgery. And I had two options. I could have it all done in the uh, Utica, Syracuse area, or we're three hours outside of New York City here. Uh, I have a relative that works for Sloan Kettering in New York. And several people here have gone to Sloan Kettering for cancer treatment. With, They've got an excellent reputation. So uh, I, those were the two options we were exploring. At the end of the day, we decided on what I would call a hybrid option, which is that the people at Sloan, the doctors there would prescribe my care or treatment, both the chemo and the radiation, and eventually do the surgery but the chemo and radiation would be administered in uh, in Utica. And we did that 
for two reasons. One is that I went for my first chemo treatment in New York, and you've got to remember, this was at the height of you know first wave of COVID, yeah. and uh, you know it's it just challenging to go to New York to begin with. Right? This, this was uh, late June, early July, and I realized that logistically, it just was going to be very difficult. It was tough for the to get the chemo treatment, but it would be even tougher when I had to go for radiation, which would be every day for six weeks. And I thought, you know, I, I cannot take my family, make them put their lives on hold. So I'd be down there on my own uh, going through this treatment. And, and it just seemed to me it was so important to be surrounded by my family as I went through this whole process. So we made the decision uh, to do a hybrid approach. And the other reason was that I realized going down to New York that one time that it's important for me to, to, to stay in my routine. And my routine is I get up every morning, I walk my dogs for a couple hours, then I come back and I ride my bike for a couple hours and then I do work around the, the house. and. And if I was down in New York, I wouldn't be able to do that. So for those reasons, we decided on a hybrid approach. And and I think that worked fairly well. You've got to be, as a patient, you've got to be probably more involved in your care because you're trying to manage the uh, cancer care between two very, very different healthcare providers. You know, the, the uh, people here in Utica, they're great people but they do bread and butter cases. And uh, and they were the ones who were administering the care, but it was the people in New York who are really on the cutting edge of cancer research. And my oncologist there, that's all he does is esophageal cancer. And my surgeon, that's all she does is esophageal cancer. So to try and meld those two systems together as a patient, I think you just have to to uh, to be heavily involved in the care. And so ended up working out well. Uh, you know, I went through the, uh, started out with the chemotherapy for two months. I would go in every Thursday, <clears throat> or every other Thursday, they would hook me up to a pump, send me home, I would uh, get infused for 48 hours. And then my wife would uh, unhook the pump and I'd have two weeks to recover and, and then go do it all again. And, uh, and what I found during that phase of the process was that uh, I began putting a numerical score on how I felt every day. So when I would start go in for the chemotherapy, I usually go in at a, an eight or a nine. My scale was from one to 10. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I'd get the infusion and over the course of three or four days, I'd go down to like a one or a two where I could hardly get out of bed. I mean, it was just awful. But then my body would recover during that two weeks. And so by the end, I was back riding my bike strong again. I felt good. I was back up to an eight or a nine. I'd go back in. I'd do it all over again. So, uh, and then 
once that was complete, they gave me eight weeks off to regain full strength. And then I started the uh, radiation, the chemo pills every day, and the chemo infusions every other week. And that was, uh, you know, the chemo was, was tough, but I could recover every two week interval. What you find with the radiation is that it's cumulative. So I went into it, I was feeling great. And by the end of six weeks, I felt like I'd been hit by a Mack truck. I could hardly get out of bed. It was just awful. But uh, you know, at, at the end of that time, again, they, they give you time to recover. I had eight weeks before I had to go to New York for surgery. And I thought by the end of four weeks, I was back up to full strength. I was you know, riding my bike strong again, climbing well, doing, you know, feeling good. And uh, so then in early December, we uh, we went down to New York for surgery. And, and I would say about that, that, you know, as much as they try to prepare you in advance for what is going to happen, I'm not sure that anybody can truly prepare you for that experience. Uh, first of all, when I went in, they want you to fast for 36 to 48 hours prior to surgery. So we went down there, we stayed in New York uh, prior to surgery. I stopped eating two days before the uh, scheduled surgery. I went into the doctor's office for my pre-surgery meeting we met with the surgeon. I remember sitting there talking with her. And then that's the last thing I remember. I uh, passed out in her office, passed out cold on the floor. I woke up, I was surrounded by 10 doctors and nurses. They called a code, which means they were afraid that I was dying. And uh, called an ambulance, put me on a put me in the ambulance, took me over to the hospital and completely re-ran the test that they had done before to make sure I wasn't going to die in surgery uh, and, and try and figure out what had happened. And, and I don't think they ever did figure out what had happened. But uh, you know, I, I think in my mind, it was a combination of just the stress of looking forward to the surgery, not really knowing what was going to happen and not eating or drinking, uh, you know, for 24 hours prior to that. And, and the combination of those two just, you know, laid me out flat. So. Yeah. The 24 hour, 24 to 36 hours is a long time. I mean, typically yeah. it's maybe don't, don't eat or drink or whatever after 10 or something like that, maybe 12 hours, but oh, yeah. in a couple of oh. days, that's, that's tough yeah. stretch. Tough. Yeah, coupled that with the stress, like you were talking about, you know, big day, right? Yeah, yeah. And we got up that morning before the appointment. You're in New York. You want to see the city. It was before Christmas. My wife and I walked around New York and you know, went, saw various sites, and then went to the the uh, appointment about one o'clock, and that was all she wrote. So uh, <clears throat> they came in the morning. The surgery was scheduled, and they. I'll never forget. They said, look, we are 50-50 on whether or not to do this surgery. We have no idea what happened yesterday, but uh, 
we're concerned that whatever there may be something that we're not seeing. So we're going to leave it up to you as to whether or not you want to go forward with the surgery. Uh, the decision is yours. My wife looked at him and said, we're down here. We've made this decision. If you let him go home, he's not coming back. So <laughs> we'd better go forward with it. So they went forward and, uh, you know, and even in the surgery, I, I had a tough time with the surgery. It was seven hours long. Uh, my body did not react well. They had a hard time keeping my stats up during surgery. Uh, you know, it's a long time to be in surgery. And, uh, and then I came out of surgery and ended up with pneumonia. You know, uh, I tell you, prior to surgery, one of the complicating factors, you know, there are two complicating factors that you do not want to deal with after surgery. One is a leak in any of the junctions that would allow uh, fluid to get down into your abdomen, and the other is pneumonia. And uh, I ended up with pneumonia in both lungs and thought I was going to die. Yeah. I came within inches of having to go on the ventilator. My uh, oxygen saturation dropped down to the mid 80s. And it was just a you know, hor horrible experience. I, I went into that thinking that they, they did the surgery on Wednesday, I could be out. They did it on Thursday, I could be out by Sunday. And uh, it didn't work out that way. I ended up staying in there for 10 days. And when they did send me home, it was, uh, I was incredibly weak and just barely, I could hardly make it up the stairs at home. I mean, it was just, so it was a, that was a tough experience. So that was December, correct? Yeah, that's okay. why I came home right before Christmas. Okay. And, uh, and here we thing, are four months later, or almost four months. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the thing that they, they, they would talk to you about it, but it's really hard to prepare yourself. I felt like my body healed fairly quickly. The, the, uh, the incisions healed. I came home on a feeding tube. Uh, one of their biggest concerns is that it's difficult to eat, that you're going to lose a bunch of weight. They send you home. I had a tube that I kept in about 12 hours a day, and that's how I was getting my nutrition. Uh, but they took the tube out after about two weeks, and I was able to eat semi-solid food, pudding, uh, oatmeal, things like that. Uh, so I felt my body heal quickly, what I wasn't prepared for. And I think what most people with esophageal cancer would tell you is that it is taking my body much longer to adapt than it is to heal. And that is, you know, when they took out my, they took out two thirds of my esophagus and a big portion of my stomach. And, and that's hard to live with, I mean, it's, uh, Eating will never be the same again. I, I, uh, it's getting a little better, but I have to eat very small portions. Uh, if I eat too much, I get nauseous. I throw up. I. Uh, it's, Do they restrict what kinds of foods you're allowed to eat? Uh, I can eat anything that uh, you can tolerate. That I can tolerate, uh, and they they encourage me to to have a varied 
diet, uh, but it's really more how much I eat. And and I used to love sweets. <laughs> my, my morning routine used to be, I'd get up in the morning, I'd throw the dogs in the truck and I'd go over to the uh, convenience store and I'd get a cup of coffee and a big donut and that would be my breakfast. Well, Sounds awesome. Did, yeah. <laughs> if I did that today, I swear, I'd either throw up or I'd have to go home and take a nap or it, you know, I just, I couldn't do it. Uh, I find now I, you know, after a lot of my meals, if I eat too much, I, I just have to go upstairs and take a nap. I've gotten into the habit now. I'll go out and ride my bike uh, after I walk the dogs. And then I eat lunch and uh, I'm done for about two hours. I just, I've got no energy. and I just feel nauseous and sick. And so I lay down for a couple hours, take a nap. Then I get up and you know, work again until... Now, you, you had mentioned that um, one of the things you didn't realize, you know, coming out of this was how much you were going to, how, you know, adapting to all of it. How did, how did they prepare you for this? Or did they give you some idea of life might be like this after the fact? Or was a lot of kind of learning as you, um, as you kind of found what your new, your new routine was, right? You know, for, uh, from the outset through about two weeks after surgery, Sloan Kettering had a nutritionist that was uh, focused on my case. She'd call me every two weeks, find out what my weight was, if I was maintaining weight, losing weight, what I was eating. Uh, and, And she tried to prepare me for life after surgery. But I think one of the things I came to appreciate is that Nobody can truly prepare you for what it is that you are going to experience. And I say that for two reasons. One is that everybody's cancer is different. In my case, not only did they have to take out two-thirds of my esophagus, but they had to take out a big piece of my stomach, too. And that's a fairly major change to your digestive system. And some people, they just have to take out a small portion of the esophagus. so nobody's cancer is the same. But I think the other thing that I'm acutely aware of is that nobody's lifestyle is the same as mine. If I wasn't as active as I am, it probably wouldn't be a major issue. But I go out and I walk the dogs for two hours every morning. Then I come back and I ride for two hours. And then I work around the house. You know, I try... I wear a Fitbit. I try to get twenty-five to thirty thousand steps in a day, and that's I'm burning four thousand calories a day, and that's that's uh, tough. Tough to keep up with. That's tough to keep up with. It's tough yeah. to ingest that many calories. So for me to gain weight, I have to eat like five thousand calories. There's yeah. no. I can eat 5,000 calories. <laughs> That's not happening. So I would enjoy eating 5,000 yeah, calories right? if I yeah. could. But. Especially since you cut out those donuts. I mean. <laughs> so where I am now, my weight is, you know, one day I will, I am bound and determined to keep my weight from going into the 140s. 
One day I woke up and it was 150.1. I'm like, holy cow, I got to do something. I either got to cut back or I got to eat more. Or, you know, but that's, you know, right now I'm at 150 pounds and that's kind of where I think I'll be for the foreseeable future because it's really, really hard uh, to maintain my lifestyle and you know, eat enough to, to keep my my weight stable. So, well, I would also yeah. like to think, though, that your lifestyle has been a huge benefit, too. And I'm not a doctor. Your your wife could would certainly know this better than I. But um, the fact that you were already physically fit certainly, I would think, lends itself to your ability to recuperate and just get through this entire process versus maybe someone who is much less fit. That's a good point, Vince. I'll never forget when uh, I... Uh, had the diagnosis, they uh, went in, they looked at the tumor, they did the biopsy, and the uh, gastroenterologist then called me back two days later, and he said, I'm going to tell you right now, he said, you've got, you've got cancer, uh, it's a cancerous tumor, this is very serious, uh, if you're going to have cancer, this is probably isn't one of the ones that you want to have, but he said to me, and I'll never forget this, he said, uh, if I was going to go into battle with anybody against this cancer, it would be you. I mean, you're, you're in incredible shape and you've got a great attitude and you're relatively young. So, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. And, and, you know, I also look to my wife and she has never discouraged me from continuing to lead my lifestyle. There have been a lot of people who said, you just need to slow down. You know, lay in bed, take take more naps, and sleep in. I'm like, no, yeah, I don't want to do that. Uh, one of the goals when I was first diagnosed with cancer, I I set three objectives for myself, and one of them was I was going to live every day to the fullest and take advantage of everything I could. And some of the greatest moments I have in life are either walking my dogs or out riding my bike. And, you know, I, I would tell you, I, one of the benefits of having cancer is you appreciate those moments more than you otherwise might because you don't know. I mean, I was riding the other day past a field of daffodils that were coming up, just beginning to emerge, and I stopped. I just looked at him for a while because I'm thinking, this might be the last time I ever see daffodils coming up. So, you know, for me, it's one of my lifestyle is one of the things that keeps my attitude positive. And that was one of the other goals that I set for myself was throughout this process, keep a positive attitude, you know, it's, uh, which at times it's easier said and done than done, but uh, you know, I think it is important to to uh, to stay positive and to believe that that I can beat this thing. And so yeah, one hundred percent agree with that. Uh, i've I've seen too many times where they say that uh, the the attitude is is everything. Yeah. Um, and and it, you know, some people say, well, that kind of sounds cheesy or or you know whatever, but it, but it is it's so true. Yeah. 
the other thing I realize is that when I go and sit right now, I'm uh, now I'm on immunotherapy, which uh, I do every two weeks. I go in, <clears throat> uh, get in, get an infusion that takes about an hour of uh, they're giving me Opdivo, uh, and I'll do that. I've got six more treatments. But you go in there and you sit in the cancer ward and you and you look around and you see people that are in a lot worse shape than I am, and yet they may manage to have a really positive attitude about life and, and their diagnosis. And, and you think, well, what the heck am I complaining about? You know? So uh, it's hard to feel too sorry for yourself when you, when you go in and do that. And so, uh, you know, the other positive thing that I think has come out of this whole diagnosis is that it makes you realize how much other people love and care for you and how much you love and care for other people, which I think sometimes, you know, when, when you look at life as, as being kind of infinite, you tend to take that for granted. But when you when it becomes finite, when you can look ahead and kind of, you know, the end of the road uh, is much closer than you might have thought, you're much more open about those feelings. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. I think people today with the whole COVID experience maybe have had a very, very small taste of that. If, they have, if they've truly been isolated from friends and family and haven't gone out, they would take going out to dinner with another couple for granted. But if they haven't done that now in 6, 10, maybe 12 months, like they're just clamoring to do that and have a small taste of like, oh my God, I, I can't wait to do that again and just, just sit around with you know, like-minded folks, friends, whoever, and just talk, and, but actually be in the same room. I'll give you a concrete example. I, I now finish all of my phone calls with people that work for me in Indianapolis by saying, I love you. And they, in turn, come back to me and say, I love you, Chris. You know, we're, we're much more open about expressing our feelings towards each other. I mean, we've always felt that way for years, but we would never voice it. And now, you know, I think you're just, now I find myself voicing those those feelings, not just with the people I work with, but you know, acquaintances. And I've just been overwhelmed by uh, the amount of caring and love that people uh, have shown as I've gone through this process. It's, it's really overwhelming. Well, good on you for, for doing that, recognizing that, and expressing that. I think that, uh, that says a lot about your character, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it, in a lot of ways it's been a really – my brother told me, he's a, also a doctor, when I was first diagnosed, he said uh, – get prepared. This is going to be the toughest year of your life. And it's been all that and more, but in many ways, it's been the most rewarding and eye-opening year of my life. So, you know, it's, you take the good with the bad or the bad with the good. So, yeah, I 
I understand that fully. Uh, your wife wouldn't by chance be an earshot of this uh, interview, would she? She is not. She's not. Okay. Well, you tell her we said good on her for mm-hmm. wearing the pants and speaking up and taking charge when, when it was needed. And we yeah. appreciate her uh, helping fight alongside you for sure. Yeah. I see. Uh, it was important when we went uh, to New York. She was my patient advocate. Uh, and it was, uh, she's been by my side through the whole thing. So it's, you know, you don't have to have a doctor uh, in the house with you, but if you do, it sure helps. And so you know, she's been, she's been great. Well, with this being so fresh at this point, if, if you did encounter someone who was in, you know, where you were six months ago, what, what would you share with them today if they, they came to you for some advice? You know, I, I'd give them the same advice that I gave to myself, those three points. Uh, keep a positive attitude. Uh, live every day to its fullest. Uh, and the other objective that I've got, that I set for myself, was that every at every stage of the process, try to exceed expectations. I mean, just go into it with the attitude that I can get through this. I mean, Right. It's it's going to be tough. Uh, but that's the advice that I would give anybody else approaching this. And mainly, just keep a positive attitude. It will get better. I, you know, I, I will never forget when we went back for our follow up visit with the surgeon, and she knew I was struggling uh, with trying to adapt to the new eating. And she said to me, look, this will get better. The, the human body has an incredible ability to adapt. And it, it may, you know, it's not going to be as fast as you want it. Three months from now, you're not going to be eating normally again, but you you will, your body will adapt and you will adapt to this new reality. And so uh, just have to go into it with that attitude. good words yeah yeah so I, one one thing that comes to mind i know you recently reached out based on some um some a story that was shared on the heroes blog and site and things like that so obviously you've you've kept in you've kept in touch with what heroes has been up to what's what kept you in touch i mean you you moved away your own beautiful property what what kept you in touch with with heroes and everything that's that's going on uh you know i think don was always a good friend. Uh, he was very supportive of me and uh, and of my son when uh, he started racing, and we would go to the races with him. And uh, and so I've I've stayed in touch with Don and uh, told him of my cancer diagnosis. And you know, I, I just consider Don. I don't see him that much, but I always consider Don to be a close friend, and I. You know, there are, there are a bunch of really, really good people on that team. Uh, and I'll never forget when my son, he was probably 13 years old, just starting out bike racing and going, taking him to Iceman. And we would sit around the dinner table with you know, these grown, mature men. And they took a true interest in him as a bike racer, as a person, and uh, followed his career. And you know, they're, you know, they're just a really good 
group of people that uh, I was I was proud to be associated with uh, after we left Indianapolis. Uh, my daughter went back to race Iceman and the group welcomed her in uh, just like she was part of the team. So uh, it's uh, I. I've always respected the team and I respect the mission that they're on and you know and now as somebody who has cancer, it's uh, you can appreciate it even more. It's it's uh, it's a good thing that the heroes are doing. So, well, we we appreciate your participation and support. And I, I'm saying the obvious here. If there's anything we can do to further assist you, you know how to get a hold of us, and we were we're there. Yeah, yeah, we'll be out there uh, in uh, three weeks. So I think called down and try to get together with them for a ride. So we still own the business uh, in Indianapolis, coming out for a board meeting. So uh, I get out there every quarter. So. Well, great. Um, if I don't see you when you're here, take care. Um, keep kicking Cancer's ass. We'll, uh, we'll be here to assist however we can. Uh, don't be a stranger if you need something. And okay. uh, we really appreciate your time tonight and sharing your story. Yeah, thank you.